to the upgraded podcast, Dr. Jennings. Lovely to have you on board. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So if it's okay to introduce yourself and explain your background to our audience, please. Did general dentistry for about 10 years. And in that time, I got into heavy into European type orthodontics using a lot of functional appliances. And with those skills, I was able to treat more and more people with uh, orofacial pains and dysfunction. And so 10 years into my general practice, I sold my general practice and limited my practice to orofacial pain and dental orthopedics, dental medicine. And it was about that time that I happened working with a researcher with regard to chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And I had a seizure case that had a year into treatment told me that since I'd put her mouthpieces in, she hadn't had a seizure. And so I ran that by the physician I was working with and he said, oh, that's a substance P problem. And so I started looking at substance P back then, then 25 plus years ago. And I've extensively studied that and tied that into jaw orthopedics and have developed quite a few insights into dental medicine and medicine in general as a consequence. So over the years, I've been involved with a number of different medical conditions. I got into movement disorders. I've got into a lot of inflammatory conditions. We looked at seizures. We've looked at Lyme disease. There's just a number of things that gradually over the years has opened up and we've seen the connection that's not common knowledge to most of the dental profession. I have a article I'm publishing on cancer that'll be published in the May issue of Cranio, which is the largest TMJ journal in the United States. We're talking about in that article about why they should be doing adjunctive jaw orthopedics in conjunction with cancer treatment. And so this is going to make a pretty big splash, I think, in the dental profession in that it really expands the role of dentists in medicine. I was saying to Nick offline with this, this is going to be such a fascinating conversation because this was both new to us in terms of this field. So is it all right? I think I've got the order right in terms of the questions that we're going to go through, but is it right to take people on a journey with this in terms of explaining the application of orthodontics and dental orthopedics at a high level? And then we'll, we'll do a deep dive in terms of a lot of the things that you've just mentioned there. There's orthodontics, which gets you straight teeth. And there's jaw orthopedics, which gets the jaw aligned. And they're a little bit mixed and mingled, and they both contribute to each other. But the profession is extremely confused as to the differentiation between orthodontics and orthopedics. And orthodontists, for the most part, don't understand orthopedics. Dentistry, for the most part, doesn't understand that there's a very precise place and space that the lower jaw should be. And there's an organization, the International College of Cranial Mandibular Orthopedics, that's international, that's pretty good. They use high-tech equipment for assessing jaw function. But even that organization, to a degree, they haven't turned a corner and looked heavily at the medical and even the way that they approach it, the appliances that they use, I believe, doesn't quite get them most of the case histories that I review that they've treated doesn't quite get them to where I think they should be. But orthodontists, at least in this country, generally use braces and braces are a horrible orthopedic appliance. You have to put 
typically some kind of plastic on top of the teeth to deprogram the jaw to find out where that jaw needs to be and then make your orthodontic diagnosis, which is contrary to traditional orthodontics. Orth traditional orthodontics has you bite your teeth together, does a cephalometry x-ray, and from that x-ray, they diagnose where it is that they should be moving teeth rather than uncoupling the lower jaw, finding out where that jaw wants to be in space. And the difference on those two, the biggest difference is, is a vertical dimension and an anterior positioning of the lower jaw. Pretty much all dentists believe that there should be a slight overlap between the lower teeth and the upper teeth. That gives you what they call anterior guidance. But all primitive humans bit tip to tip. Only modern man has overbites. And I think it's been in the last 250 years that jaws are gradually getting further back and the upper jaw is going back. And so the whole cranium and lower jaw is shriveling and shrinking, reducing in size and retreating to the point that these days, airway is impacted dramatically and snoring and sleep apnea is a massive problem. And so the dental profession is now looking at the snoring and apnea problem, but for the most part, they don't appreciate that they need to bring those jaws forward more than just at nighttime. They need those jaws forward 24 hours a day if they're gonna calm down this trigeminal nerve and lower your substance P levels and impact a broad spectrum of medical diseases. So the, our whole profession internationally is very confused and not clear as to what they need to be doing. The end on invite, there's biomechanical reasons why we need, must, should, and do better by any tip to tip. Muscles that suspend your lower jaw, muscles are like filaments. And if you either foreshorten a muscle or elongate a muscle, it gets weaker. So muscles tend to attach to your lower jaw to be strongest whenever they have to service the furthest point from your jaw joint. And that's when you bite tip to tip. So muscles attached to your lower jaw to be strongest when you're biting tip to tip and most relaxed. So when you wade into this system and try to find out where it is that the jaw should be in its most relaxed form to calm down the trigeminal, it's pretty much always when people are tip to tip. There's about 10% of cases that actually end up like this with underbites and then you have to advance the upper front teeth to give them a tip to tip bite. But that's a very controversial position, but my thousands of clinical cases bear out that it's highly important and critical to address certain conditions, highly inflammatory conditions. What's been the driver then from, I'm not going to use the correct terminology here, Dr. Jennings, but when you said, if my overbites, what's been the driver in terms of moving, as you said, they should be, should be in line to having an overbite? So they think it's primarily soft diets that's causing jaws to shrink and shrivel and retreat. They call it industrialized diet. And so the, there's very extensive anthropological evidence that we're getting worse and worse. There's a book, Anthropology's Contribution to the Orthodontic Diagnosis, and it's mostly about studies around the world on all continents showing that every generation is significantly worse than their parents. And so as these bites are getting worse, it portends very severe medical consequences 
Have we covered, do you think, the jaw in terms of explaining that in layman's terms to the audience, or should we look at that in some detail? The public at large will tend to appreciate and understand it faster than dentists will. Dentists are very confused. They have a pre-existing concept of where they think people should be because with all their vast training, but they don't have the clinical experience that makes me have to put everybody there. They all know very solidly from their training and they have very strong reasons as to why they think people should be such and such. But clinically, you know, if I take a trigeminal neuralgia patient that's in severe pain and that the only medical solution out there is brain surgery, these patients are very critical and they give me very quick and intense feedback if I don't do it exactly precise. And they all push me to put them to, with an end on end bite. Can we talk around biting and jaw alignment? The best way to get insight as to how the bite impacts the body is through neurology. And there's the trigeminal nerve, which is sensory from ear to ear and here to the crown of your head. This is your trigeminal nerve sensory zone. And all dentists and all medical people know about the trigeminal nerve. But what nobody seems to know about is what they call the trigeminal system. And it's how this nerve interfaces with the brain. And so there are proprioceptors, there are sensors in your teeth, gums, and tissues that tell the brain where your jaw is in space. And that, those sensors go to a very special nucleus in the brain called the trigeminal mesencephalic. Trigeminal mesencephalic is composed of the only sensory cell bodies in the brain. All your sensory cell bodies for your eyes and ears and skin are outside in the ganglion, but your trigeminal sensors are in the brain. And where they're strategically located, they have a massive influence both on your sympathetic system and on your reticular formation. And your reticular formation is your reptilian brain and your center of sensory integration. So you see a lot of sensory processing disorders, movement disorders, autism is part of that problem that get impacted in the reticular formation when the bite's off. It causes it when the bite's off and your sensors are overworked all the time, then that mesencephalic information bleeds off into the reticular formation. There's research by Australian researcher back in 1964 showing that the predominant neuron in your particular formation are second order neurons coming from your trigeminal mesencephalic. So the trigeminal mesencephalic has a massive influence into the reticular formation. Side by side trigeminal mesencephalic is your locus ceruleus, which is your sympathetic ganglion in the brain, and likewise has a major influence on sympathetic tone in the body. So with jaw dysfunction, you often see anxiety disorders, excess worrying, panic attacks, and a numerous other fight or flight type responses. This has a major implication to post-traumatic stress disorder, to the polyvagal theory, and to a number of other problems because of how it feeds it. The trigeminal nerve, also controls brain blood flow. The key search term here is regional cerebral blood flow. So regional cerebral, the blood flow to any particular region of your brain is influenced by your bite. And that's why when a boxer gets hit in the jaw, he passes out.
you stimulate this nerve too much, or if you eat ice cream and stimulate it too much, you get a brain freeze. Those are other examples of trigeminal vascular problems, but that manifests clinically with the brain fog, slow brain function, mental acuity, you know, IQ, and then a lot of developmental disabilities. All the pain fibers from the trigeminal go to the same nucleus as your upper cervical, glossopharyngeal, and vagus nerve, right? And so you can get a bleed over if there's too much trigeminal sense here from a bad day. You can get a bleed over. You can have neck, chronic neck pain, get the headaches, you get chronic sore throats, and you can have migratory abdominal pain. Patient once who had severe migratory abdominal pain, they'd done exploratory surgery on her twice. She started with a severe overbite. By the time we finished her treatment, her chronic abdominal pain had all gone away. So there's the trigeminal has a hundred times more dense C fibers, the pain fibers in your body than any other nerve in your body. And so when there's a disturbance within the trigeminal nerve and your substance feeding fibers are chronically stimulated, they communicate with the brain and locally and centrally by substance P. Substance P was discovered in 1931. There's extensive research under our National Library of Medicine. There's over 24,000 articles on substance P. It's implicated in a broad spectrum of illnesses and medical dysfunction from autoimmune disorders, heart disease, cancer, smooth muscle issues like IBS, Crohn's, skin disorder, sudden P drives all, eczema, seborrheic psoriasis. So when your bites off, your sudden P levels go up and it predisposes you to a very broad spectrum of medical illness. There's a study done by our Kaiser showing that people with jaw dysfunction have very high medical utilization rates in the neighborhood of three to four times the average population. Substance P, as it goes up, what substance P does in the body is it depolarizes cell membranes. And all cells are like a little battery. And when the voltage drops on a cell, it fires too quickly and too easily. So substance P is a, known to be a major neurosecretory modulator throws off your hormones, typically with bite dysfunction. Women go into estrogen dominance, a lot more prone to fibroids, miscarriages, gynecological dysfunction. Have a couple cases that we're treating with growth hormone problems, but but yeah, it's a a major neural secretory modulator where substance P attaches to its receptor on the cell membrane wall. It opens up the cell membrane and allows a calcium influx into the cell. Now, calcium is the primary means by which the mitochondria communicates. There's a great book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disorder, or Metabolic Disease, I believe it's the name of the book. And it's all about cell membrane porosity, how most cancers are caused from cell membrane porosity. His only solution at the end of the book was a ketogenic diet to stabilize the cell membranes. But that problem in cancer is a substance P problem. Pancreatic cancer under our National Library of Medicine, there's over 80 articles on substance P in pancreatic cancer, but nobody's talking about it, nobody's looking at it, nobody's addressing it. Both chemotherapy and radiation increase your substance P levels. So though they're trying to fight cancer, they're in effect also increasing your propensity towards cancer. It's not a very uh, well-targeted remedy. Why is nobody talking about it? Why is it not prevalent? Because there's no pharmaceutical remedy for it. There is a single approved in this country, a single substance P antagonist. 
called a Prepotent. Amend is the brand name. And it's approved only for severe nausea after chemotherapy. Some people are starting to use it off-label. But generally, since there's no pharmaceutical remedies, it's just not in their vocabulary, in most physicians' vocabulary in this country. The research is very clear, like that substance P is what drives allergies. It's what drives asthma. It's what drives mucus production. It's a major stimulator of cytokines. So all your inflammatory cytokines are primarily heavily stimulated by substance P levels. There's some research on rats showing that if you irritate the masseter muscle, this being the only muscle in the body that if you irritate it, it causes a spreading cascade of elevated substance P going from this to the trigeminal ganglion to the brain and down the spinal cord, right? So that's a little bit like fibromyalgia. There's multiple studies on fibromyalgia showing that fibromyalgia patients have three to five times normal levels of substance P in the spinal fluid. As you open up cell membranes by substance P, the research shows that it makes you vulnerable to viral and spirochete invasion. There's a researcher in this country, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Dr. Ho, and he's published very ex extensively claiming that if you could control substance P, you should be able to control HIV. But for the substance P opening up cell membranes, the HIV virus would not be able to get into the cells. Likewise, there's similar literature on spirochetes, which has a strong implication to Lyme disease. The bullseye that some people get from a tick bite, they get a really large red bullseye. So that lesion tells you that that person before the tick bite already had elevated substance P. But for their elevated substance P, they would not have that large of, a, of an inflammatory reaction, right? That is, some people get tick bites and they don't react at all. That's the same thing on mosquito bites. Some people get mosquito bites and get really large welts, and some people don't react at all. And those are indications of how elevated their substance P is and how dramatically they respond to sensory input. So that's fundamentally the problem when you throw off substance P levels is that it throws off our sensory system. Medicine is missing a sensory theory of illness. Medicine doesn't appreciate that too much sensory input will make you sick, right? We have our infectious theories and our stress theories, but we really don't understand that too much sunlight, too much noise, or too much sensory input from a bad bite is gonna throw off your substance P levels. When does it start to make a difference? So if a child's got a, a misalignment of the jaw, is there a compounding effect where when they transition to an adult, that they start noticing some of the issues that you've talked around? Yeah, so bad bites are typically inherited. They often are impacted even in the womb, right? That's thumb sucking isn't a habit, it's a necessity. The kids are making their own splint. They're trying to prop their jaw open to increase their sense of well-being. And even in the womb, a lot of babies suck their thumb. Right? At birth and shortly thereafter, People with a lot of inherited jaw dysfunction will be a lot more colicky, be a lot more fussy, a lot more hypersensitive. They often, but not always, have a lot more ear infections. Substance P is a major modulator of secretions within the eustachian tube and the ear. There's a couple studies done showing that building up the back molars on young children is 
95% effective at stopping all future ear infections, right? So they, you see different illnesses with jaw dysfunction at a different age. So you're gonna see a lot more ear infections, colds, flus, as they get older, they'll have more allergies, asthma, get into their teens, you'll start seeing more headaches, a lot more prone to contagious diseases, more GI issues, GI irritability. Substance P controls gut motility. What normally happens when you chew is that your substance P levels naturally and normally become elevated and that turns on gut motility. But people with chronic bite problems and too much activity here all the time end up with a lot more GI instability. That substance P is causing leaky gut, not only in the gut, but throughout the whole body as it opens up those cell membranes. As people age, as you get into their 20s and 30s, you'll start seeing more musculoskeletal problems. The musculoskeletal system is dramatically impacted with bite disturbances. As the chin goes back, you go into a more forward head posture that puts quite a bit more load on the cervical region, on the spine. Substance P, where it opens up that cell membrane, is a major modulator of calcium metabolism in the body. And so a lot of the osteophytes and the uh, spinal degeneration is going to be impacted by your substance P levels. As people get older, you start seeing more autoimmune disorders. As you get into your late age, you see more neurodegenerative disorders. In the brain, glial activation, the white matter of the brain, becomes inflamed prior to all neurodegenerative diseases. And substance P is a primary driver of glial activation, they call it, or central sensitization or inflammation of the brain. It's my hypothesis that in autism, it's the mother that has a bad bite and she gestates that baby for nine months in an altered neurochemical environment, too much substance B. The research shows that autistic babies pop out of the womb with too much substance B. And when they get their permanent teeth, I think that's often what pushes them over the edge and why you have a delayed onset oftentimes in autism. But the central sensitization, the inflammation of the brain is a primary characteristic of autism. They have sensory processing disorders, very large amounts of gastrointestinal disturbances. Dr. Jennings, would it be possible to lower the symptoms of autism in an individual if you adjusted their jaw? Yes, we've treated a number of cases. Give an example, I had a, he was a seventh grader, so he would have been about 13 year old adopted child, very hyperactive. He was in special education, very violent, and we put him into appliances and it had such a profound impact on him that if he ever started acting up in class, his teachers would tell him he had to go back and see his dentist again. And he ended up being the only child in special for his grade year, for his grade that year, that graduated with a high school diploma. His adopted mother thinks that it saved his life and uh, made him a much more higher functioning individual. So in the last five years, six years, there's very extensive research that shows that substance P is the primary driver in the brain for mood disorders, for depression, anxiety, 
for PTSD, for violent behavior, for addictive behavior. Most of the bad things going on there is, is heavily driven by substance P. Substance P opens up that blood brain barrier and also causes quite a bit of dysregulation on brain function with the uh, impacted uh, blood brain barrier problems. Is there a way to reduce substance mm -hmm. P naturally? I know by, say, addressing the jaw, you're fixing the root cause. Is right. there something that people could do in parallel to having their jaw realigned to help yes. speed? Yes. So the primary causation that drives up your substance P is magnesium deficiency. Right. And so they think in this country, I think it's been said that about 90% of the population is magnesium deficient right, with our modern diets. The second thing is that cayenne pepper depletes substance P out of the body, right? So they primarily use cayenne pepper in hot climates to deplete substance P so they can tolerate the heat better, right? They're less sensitive reactive to the heat. But, sub, but cayenne pepper temporarily elevates your substance P, it mobilizes it and eventually it depletes it out of the body. But there are a number of other supplements that are helpful. So CBDs, stabilized cell membranes, which is the opposite thing that substance P does. Resveratrol has been shown to be effective. Quercetin, all the spices, turmeric, cinnamon, vanilla, all the spices tend to mitigate the effects of substance P. Acupuncture reduces your substance P levels. And I suspect that probably even massage and moderate exercise would all lower your substance P levels. Can you give us some detail around oral facial pain and TMJ treatment, please. So the dental profession is very confused about TMJ treatment. So there's two primary schools of thought. There's a psychosomatic school of thought, which is kind of in the minority these days, but still held by a number of dental school universities. And that's that, that TMJ is a stress condition and you treat it with physical therapy, biofeedback and stress management. But then the second school of thought is that it's from the jaw being back and they're into anterior repositioning therapy, ART. And that's where the largest TMJ organizations are and the vast amount of research and the belief on most people these days. And it's a little bit of both. Stress can exacerbate your TMJ pain. But when you go to do anterior repositioning therapy, there's a very broad spectrum of what dentists think is right. So they there's a large continuum as to how far forward they bring jaws and not many of them are bringing them all the way tip to tip or sometimes in underbite cases. And how far you get that lower jaw forward is dictated a lot by what kind of hardware you're using, what kind of splint. Most dentists are using, some of them use flat splints, which give you no guidance on where to bite. Some of them use anatomical splints, which have grooves in it and they give you a sensor place to target to. And the appliances I use are what we call twin blocks, which are invented by a guy from uh, Scotland. And those have a lower appliance and an upper hot appliance with a ramp. And so when you close, you have to close forward. And that allows me to anteriorize people, patients a little bit more than most dentists do. And then the other problem is, is that 40% of our patients, even with this heavily ramped appliance, don't do well at nighttime without a appliance that holds them in position better. And so my nighttime appliance of choice is what is a German appliance, which is what we call a neutral bionator. And both of these appliances, when you equilibrate them, it's critical 
let they be adjusted to what we call pivot mechanics. And you want all the molars supporting the bite and nothing forward supporting the bite. So what should happen on a good bite is when a person closes up, they should hit their back teeth first and then pivot microscopically. They should close up, hit their back teeth and microscopically pivot to get their front teeth together. And that decompresses the TMJ joint. If you close up and hit the front teeth first, then you have to compress your jaw joints to get your back teeth together. And that's how most people are these days with the jaw retruded, the back teeth aren't tall enough. That's your primary thing that you have to treat in TMJ patients. You have to get their back molars taller. You have to get them precisely coordinated right to left also. You have to get that jaw on trajectory. There's a very precise, relaxed place in space that the jaw wants to go to. You can find that with, with a very high degree of accuracy by just sticking a tongue blade, popsicle stick, anything between somebody's front teeth and tell them to close. And 95% of the time, they'll automatically close to where they need to be. So it's very easy to find that closing position by just putting a popsicle stick between their teeth. Dentists don't know that. What should happen on a good bite is that you should bite and talk on the same trajectory. Most people have overbites. They thrust their jaw forward when they're talking to control airflow. And so you want them so they bite and talk in the same spot. You want to turn them into a ventriloquist. They should be able to talk without moving their jaw. Right? And when you eventually come to understand this, it'll bother you quite a bit to watch newscasters that have a lot of hypermobility in their jaw function. It's a testament of character. We intuitively as humans know that there's something off when they have a lot of hypermobility. It's, it's like seeing somebody who's very emotional and their jaws all quivering, quivering versus somebody who's very stoic and very stable when they talk. We know that that impacts mental ability, cognition, and emotional stability. Is there a connection then with TMJ and Parkinson's and other things that are related to the brain? Yes, so Parkinson's is a neurodegenerative disease. Emma Thornton, you can look this up, 2008, PhD thesis, Australia. She showed that she could reverse the Parkinson's model in rats with a substance P antagonist. So the literature is a little confusing. So initially substance P levels become elevated and then they crash and burn. And when they crash and burn, so does dopamine. So substance P is going down as the dopamine goes down. But there's, if you look under YouTube at TMJ and Parkinson's, there's quite a number of case histories in which they reversed Parkinson's symptoms with through bite therapy. So it, again, it's, substance P brain neurotransmitter problem that's tied into dopamine. I've had three cases in which they put these patients into nighttime appliances for sleep apnea. And over time, getting that jaw forward all night long in the daytime, it wouldn't go back anymore. And when the jaw wouldn't go back then, a number of years later, all three of them developed Parkinson's. So they'd had this prior treatment and through the bite off, they eventually ended up with no molar support, and then they eventually got Parkinson's. But there's very extensive medical literature talking about the uh, importance of substance P in neurodegenerative disorders, including Parkinson's. Why isn't this more of a consensus? Why isn't this mainstream opinion in terms of all of the points that you're making to us? Nobody's heard of substance P. They're all looking for a pharmaceutical remedy. They're not looking for practical 
And since there's no pharmaceutical remedies, none of the physicians are talking about it. So if it can't be monetized, it's not prevalent. Right. As the human jaws degenerate, it pretends that, that we're going to have massive medical healthcare costs are, are dramatically going to rise. You know, they, what they really need is they need dental orthopedists in every medical practice. It's just amazing how ill-informed the medical professions are about headaches, right? The, your temporalis muscle on the side of your head is what pulls your jaw back. That's what the function of this muscle is. And when people have a retreated jaw, this muscle gets overworked. This muscle is also, we know acupuncturally is what controls the gallbladder, right? If you look at the gallbladder meridian, it crisscrosses back and forth. There's a Z pattern because of the massive influence of the temporalis on gallbladder function. So TMJ patients, you often see gallbladder removal, but and I've had a couple of cases in their midst of their TMJ problems, they get a lot of gallbladder attack. But even on headaches, it's the trigeminal nerve. The trigeminal nerve provides all the pain fibers to the front two thirds of your head. And it's upper cervical that provides pain fibers to the back third. And all the pain fibers from the trigeminal and the upper cervical go to the same nucleus in the brain. We just happen to name them different, but it's, so it's actually the same nerve going in different directions. And this system gets hyperactivated primarily when the bites is over-retreated. So the test that they should be doing for headaches is surface electromyography. They should be looking at the temporalis and the masseters. And we know from what they call neuromuscular dentistry that the function of the temporalis and the masseters should fire equally and simultaneously. So on scanning, when you're reading these four muscles and tell someone to bite, these muscles should all jump simultaneously or else there's a torque. So a lot of people, there'll be a torque to one side, you can get all kinds of different torquing and it's the torquing that overexcites these leading to chronic pain and headaches. But yeah, the medical profession is still primarily throws medication. I just had a lady come in, she's 39. She's had severe migraines since age three, got her first splint when she was 13. You know, she's gone through multiple splint therapies. Nobody's really properly diagnosed her into multiple dentists, multiple splints. So back on when the other problem on TMJ splint therapy is that when you check the evenness of splint, most dentists use carbon paper. Doesn't work, not near precise enough for what this system needs. With its hundred times more dense C fibers, it demands really, really high precision. And so what I use is what we call polyvinyl siloxane. It's a silicone material that you squirt in there very fast set, sets in about 15 seconds. You take it out, hold it up to the light, and it's uh, probably about 30 times as accurate as carbon paper at being able to precisely adjust mouthpieces. And so a lot of times people have splints done, you know, if they do get them on trajectory, then they don't adjust them to get the support just on the back teeth. Treating this as a process, not a procedure. You put a mouthpiece in on somebody, make the back teeth a little bit taller, and as they wear that, jaw decompresses a little bit, it flips up, and now they're hitting the front teeth again and all their symptoms come back. You gotta adjust it again, gotta clear all those front teeth. Again, you gotta improve mechanics. And so you gotta walk, you gotta decompress that joint, you gotta walk it down, get it fully decompressed before it stabilizes. It takes some time, depending on how severe it's compressed, to get it stabilized, sometimes six months to a year. Uh, if you look at the opioid crisis, right? Since we're missing that sensory theory of illness, most of these opioid addicted people 
are self-medicating. They have elevated substance P and they get, you know, a few hours of relief with those opioids. They can calm down. They're not so, as substance P levels go up, it drives you, makes you agitated. You're no longer calm, cool, and collected. You're in fight or flight anxiety mode and to get just a few minutes of relief from that constant lifelong buzz, it's worth it to them, to those people. They're not gonna have any luck with the opioid crisis without looking at bites. So in terms of summarizing, what can our audience do in terms of practical next step? As far as a real preventative, long-term major treatment, you'd wanna look at jaw orthopedics at any age. So substance P, where it opens up cell membranes, is the primary driver of pneumonia. That's what kills most elderly people, or not most, a lot of them, right? And this COVID-19 problem, pneumonia is a, is a big problem. The medical profession is highly confused as to what pneumonia is. Pneumonia is not an infectious disorder. It's an inflammatory disorder, usually caused by infection. So when you're trying to address the inflammatory condition, it really behooves you to look at your substance P levels. But yeah, you'd look at the bites, look at magnesium levels, you know, moderate exercise, good foods, and you might consider supplements in the resveratrol quercetin. Dr. Jennings, you mentioned the appliance. What does that physically look like? Um, I'm guessing it's something that you wear in your mouth. So this is a uh, mounted model. And there's an upper appliance and a lower appliance. And they fit together on a little ramp when you bite down. And the original appliance that was invented by uh, William Clark had plastic on the entire roof of the mouth. And the one I use just has a little wire connected to the two sides, makes it a lot less bulky and a lot more tolerable for adults. And then the lower half, little wires that connect the two sides again. So these are removable. You take them off, brush your teeth, put them right back on, and you wear them all the time, even with eating. Got to keep that jaw joint decompressed at all times. Patients usually takes them about four or five days to get used to eating with them. And in about four or five days, your jaw joint decompresses, reinflates. And if you take them out, you can't get your back teeth together. So you're now you're stuck. You have to eat with them. You're trying to get that jaw joint decompressed, reinflated. And then the ultimate long-term goal is to grow the back teeth taller so that when you bite down, your, your back teeth hit sooner than your front teeth. When we treat these cases, we over-treat them a little bit. We treat them till the back teeth grow in, and then the front teeth have a millimeter or so gap. And then we let function bring them back together again. And in probably maybe 20, 30% of the cases, the height is just too much to grow the teeth. And so we end up putting crowns on top of the teeth. These are typically non-drill crowns. You don't have to drill the tooth down any because there's already a lot of space. So you can glue something just right on top of the tooth, bond it, glue it to the tooth. And so in about 20, 30% of cases, we do buildups on the teeth rather than grow the back teeth in taller. Awesome. And is there a simple test that people can do at home 
where they can tell whether or not they've got good jaw alignment. Because as you've been talking, my jaw's been going. I've been sort of playing around again. <laughs> What's my bike like? Is there something that they could do that will tell them uh, I need to go and see somebody who specializes in this? So it's primarily driven by your medical history, if they have a lot of inflammatory conditions, right? But on a screening standpoint, the first thing you'd want to do is with your little finger is to reach inside your ear and you should not be able to feel your jaw joint open and close through your ear, right? Your jaw joint should not impact back into your ear space. Yeah, so use your little finger just like that and pull forward. And so when you open and close, you shouldn't be able to feel the jaw joint as you bite on your bacteria. You shouldn't feel it pressing into your little finger. Some people, you know, 20% of the population, it's gonna severely impact their jaw, their uh, ear space. Right. I can feel my jaw. If you slide out tip to tip, how much do you feel it when you're biting tip to tip? If you bring your lower jaw all the way forward and tap, tap, tap on your front teeth, you should take take all the pressure off of your ears. Yeah. So that's what's going to happen with treatment, right? So the second thing that you'd want to look at is where a person bites versus where they go when they talk. And there should not be any either any forward thrusting or side thrusting when a person talks in their jaw. So you can look in a mirror and see where you bite versus where your jaw goes when you talk. And most people that are compressed back, their jaw will thrust forward on them. When they, uh, we typically check them with S sounds. So we have them say here, we have them say 66 or San Francisco and find out where that jaw is in space when they're talking, right? So you should be biting and talking. And so it's right at, three millimeter discrepancy that it creates a problem, an eighth of an inch. When people are about an eighth of an inch off is where you start seeing a significant medical impact. Is there a blood test for substance P that people could take? There is a blood test for substance P. Uh, in this country, the only lab company that does it is Quest. And they're not particularly good at it. They tell you on their tests, I just got a test back this morning. And they tell you that anything below 1720 is normal, but that's clearly not correct. It should be probably somewhere around 150. So this lady that I just tested, she went to a holistic dentist. They pulled eight root canal teeth. And now she's been three years and uh, seven sets of temporaries and they can't find her bite again but she was at 450. Her substance P levels are at 450. But most of my chronic pain patients are anywhere from about 400 to 700. And these are pretty ill people. And so I think the ideal level, uh, then there is some research on that should be closer to 150. And last question, Dos Jennings, what three tips would you give our audience in terms of improving their professional and personal performance? But I think bite is a major, major issue with to long-term health and energy levels, right? Substance P, where it opens up cell membranes and lowers voltage potential, induces chronic fatigue syndrome. It has a major influence on brain blood flow and psychic stability and motivation. And so I think it is one of those things up there that, you're, that they really need to think about. Is again, it's difficult finding somebody that can do it well. But 
I think the other thing is, I think moderate exercise, my personal thing that I do is I do push-ups every day. I don't miss a set of push-ups. I normally do a set of push-ups before I take my shower and a set of push-ups after. I can do about 25 push-ups at a time. Uh, it takes me 40 seconds. So for two sets of push-ups, I'm spending a minute and a half, right? And and it has a just a tr tremendous effect on airway patency, on gut motility. This is a little bit like the chewing thing. We only need a little bit of intensity stuff a day. And I think that again is a really important part. It'd be the exercise. And then the third thing I'd say would be, you know, diet. We just got to find better and better uh, foods to sustain us for the long term. Dr. Jennings, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you very much for your time. Yeah, no, thank You're you. Welcome. Brilliant. I learned so much. You're welcome, Nick. Please subscribe, like, and check out the links in the description to get early access to our videos.